Do you believe in heaven? Do you believe in heaven? Now, according to recent polls from the Pew Research Center, about three-quarters of Americans, I think a little over three-quarters of Americans, do believe in heaven. So though religious views have changed a lot over the last decade, that particular view of belief in heaven, well, that hasn't changed much. And yet, if you press in on those numbers, you'll quickly see that that unanimity of belief, for the most part, on heaven, well, that begins to fracture into lots of disparate pieces. I recall a a special, for example, that Barbara Walters did a number of years ago, and it was titled, From Valhalla to Nirvana. And she wasn't talking about the world-renowned golf course in Louisville, some of you know that, Valhalla, though for many, I think, around a golf It's a bit like what they may see as heaven, you know, the picturesque landscape, quiet recreation, personal leisure, men and women all dressed in white. Maybe for some of you, that's your idea of heaven. I hope I don't play golf in heaven personally, but... But friends, I remember that special nonetheless reflected so much of what many of us know to be the case. Namely, when it comes to heaven, we may agree that it exists, but we don't agree about much else. So, for example, Theodore McCarrick, who is the former archbishop of the Roman Catholic Church in D.C., said that heaven is where we get to see our mom and dad and the rest of our family. He talked about heaven as a big family reunion. But an imam Faisal Abdul Rauf, a founder of the American Society for Muslim Advancement, he told Barbara Walters that rather heaven is where we will be in comfortable homes, reclining on silk couches, where we're given the delights of sex, the delights of wine, the delights of food, with all of their positive things and without their negative aspects. So you see there, heaven is pictured a lot more as sort of our own private party. Now, the Dalai Lama talked about heaven not so much as a a superior existence, but rather the the desire to really mortify any existence at all, sort of heaven more as nothingness. Others talked about heaven as very much what exists in the present, right? Heaven is whatever we can make of this life today. And of course, there were the scientific skeptics on the program, heaven is all a genetic accident, you know, some of us are given this sort of God gene and we're, we're wired for belief. So in other words, heaven, for some of us, is nothing more than just some DNA. Well, again, I wonder what you believe when you hear those, that word heaven. Because Christians actually believe it's a real place. So what will it be like? How do we get there? Well, friends, that's part of what this Old Testament book of Joshua has been meant to teach us. Joshua is a preview of what's to come. Because in this book of Joshua that we started last week, well, God is presenting the life and the events of physical, ethnic Israel as a picture of a future spiritual reality, one that we will all face. Now, this book of Joshua, it's not the complete picture Right, it's a little more two-dimensional, black and white sketches. It's, it's not the sort of three-dimensional, all the contours and colors that come with the remainder as we get out into the New Testament. But it still does present us, nonetheless, with an accurate, accurate picture of what the future holds. So what I want us to do this morning is I want us to walk through the chapters we have, chapters 6 through 12. I want us to get a feel for the storyline in those seven chapters. And then I want us to consider two questions following that review. The first question is this. Who will be in heaven? 
Very simple question, who will be in heaven? And then I want to follow that up with a second question, how do we get there? Right? How do we get there? So who will be in heaven and how do we get there? And my prayer as we finish this up is that any confusion you may have about the future, well, that confusion, my prayer is that confusion will turn to certainty and any despair turn to hope as we consider these verses together. So friends, if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there now, Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 6, if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide those red Bibles and the seatbacks before you. You can find it on page 6, or rather, page 181. Joshua 6, you can find it on page 181 if you want to follow along in those red Bibles. Now last week we left off, and God had miraculously delivered Israel across the Jordan River. Right, those swollen, raging springtime waters, he stopped up in a heap upstream so Israel could cross as if on dry ground. So Joshua in that, he's, he's pictured as being raised up as a new Moses. Right? He's delivered Israel through the waters, delivering them to the promised land. And yet we noted even last week, in between, in between Israel and the promised land stands Jericho. It's a highly fortified city, and it's blocking their path. And, and we pick up the story, chapter 6, verse 1. Right? We read that Jericho was shut up inside and out. That little description right there, it's just a picture of the, the walls being impenetrable. Right? No one's getting in, no one's getting out. So to a people with little military training, like the Israelites, Jericho's a formidable obstacle. And God's response, we see chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Then further down in verse 5, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. Now, just to stop right there, right, I spent some time in D.C. around quite a few military strategists. That's not a military strategy. And if Def Defense Secretary, right, James Mad Dog Mattis, if he got on the news tomorrow and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to retire all of our B-2 bombers and we're going to purchase some brass horns, we would all think he's pretty crazy. Again, not much of a strategy. But friends, this isn't any battle. Right? Verse 17, we read that the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. In other words, it's a picture of Jericho being set apart as an offering to the Lord, really as a sacrifice to him. There's a religious element to all that's taking place. Right? Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live. Now, as you keep reading on through chapter 6, one of the things we find, of course, the walls of the city do fall. The city is captured. And Rahab, the Canaanite, right, the prostitute, she and all of her family, well, they are indeed spared, as the Israelites promised they would. And yet the conquest that begins so well in chapter 6, if you read the chapters this week, you get into chapter 7, that all comes back to sort of crash landing in reality because Israel is then routed in her very next battle, the battle against this little village of Ai. And in 7.5, we actually read the only account of any Israelite uh, casualties in all of these chapters. 
And there we learn in chapter 7 that a man named Achan, well, he stole some of those things back in chapter 6 that were to be devoted to the Lord. He took them for himself. And so we read, look down chapter 7 to verse 14, that they, referring to the Israelites in battle, well, they turn their back before their enemies because they, the Israelites, have become devoted for destruction. Oh, friends, right there, those are chilling words. In just a few verses, Israel has become like the Canaanites. Right? How quickly, in just a few verses, how their fortunes turn. Now, 7, 14 and following recount how Israel then dealt with Achan, who had sinned before the people. Now, in chapter 8, they come up against Ai once again. This time, they're successful, and to commemorate that success, God has them turn in chapter 8. They march about 20 miles north to Mount Ebal, and they, they have a kind of religious worship service there in chapter 8, which is, admittedly, again, it's a curious thing to do. You got your enemies on the run, and you stop, and you march 20 miles north, and you have a service. But again, this is no ordinary war. These are no ordinary people. In chapter 9, we fade out of that religious worship service. We fade into the various situation rooms across the rest of Canaan where all these kings are trying to figure out what they're going to do. Chapter 9, verse 1, as soon as the kings were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland and all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites heard of this, right, of all that Israel had done. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. Now, to stop there, if you remember back in chapter 3, all the hearts were melting. All the people, their hearts melting as, as the God of Israel stopped up the Jordan. They walked across. But now they're emboldened. It seems Ai, this little village, their ability to sort of punch Israel in the face, knock her down to the mat, that's emboldened them. Now they're coming and they're going to gather as one and they're going to fight offensively against Israel, except for one group, the Gibeonites. Instead of waging a war, the Gibeonites, they do something else. They resort to a ruse, and they want to make peace, though, with Israel. And this ruse works, if you read the story, but then the five kings of of Israel that are there in Canaan, they don't particularly appreciate that the Gibeonites have defected over to Israel's side. They make war against the Gibeonites in chapter 10, And yet, unlike what's happened with Achan in chapter 7, Israel honors her commitments to the Lord, her alliance with the Gibeonites. They rout the enemies with the help of some hail. There's a supernatural storm. There's an event involving the sun and the moon. Chapter 11 opens a lot like chapter 10. Another set of kings. This time, the kings aren't from the south. They're from the north of Israel. They're all preparing again to wage war against Israel. And yet, regardless of the weaponry, in chapter 11, the outcome is the same. And so chapter 11, verse 23, in many ways reflects sort of the climax of the whole book of Joshua. Chapter 11, verse 23, so Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments, and the land had rest from war. And then the scene closes chapter 12 with a list. Chapter 12 is almost like a scorecard, if you will. And it details all the kings, all who opposed Israel, 
and yet were defeated. Run through them one by one. Now, friends, that's just a brief overview of chapter 6 to 12. And if you read it again, it, it begins slowly. Lots of details regarding the first battles of Jericho and Ai. But then, as you keep reading the chapters, they pick up the pace. And they do so, I think, because it's increasingly clear. Right? Regardless of the situation, Israel could be outmanned. They may be outgunned. But regardless of what happens, the outcome remains the same. God fights for his people. So that was our brief walk through the text. And if you hadn't read the verses, right, that, those chapters, that was going to be helpful for you in just getting some context. But now we've got to turn to that first question. That first question that may strike us as a little jarring, right? Who's going to be in heaven? Who will be in heaven? I say that's a jarring question in part because if you step, you've got to step back and consider the book. Joshua is a preview of heaven. It's a preview of of what it will be like for God's people, right, to live in God's place and under his right rule, right, a place without sin, without destructive self-worship, but rather rest, rest from war, rest in the land. It's a picture of Eden restored where God and man are once again in perfect fellowship, perfect harmony, as God intended it, Eden as he intended it. Again, this is depicting for us not perfectly, not completely, but accurately nonetheless, it's depicting heaven. And it's teaching us something about heaven, right? Who gets there? Well, first answer to that question, who will be in heaven? The first answer is not everyone. The first answer to that question, according to Joshua, is not everyone. And I recognize, particularly given my own religious background, when you say not everyone is in heaven, that can feel increasingly like sort of nails across the chalkboard. Right? We want to say God's inclusive. Right? Love wins. And maybe we're okay if really bad people are left out. But we want to hold out hope, at least for the average Joe, which is to say we want to hold out hope for people like us. Because at the end of the day, of course, who's really good enough to say who gets in? Who gets to make that determination? Well, friends, God is. He's the one who sets the rule. He is the standard. And his standards, they don't shift. They don't waver. They don't change with opinion polls. Here's the thing. The Canaanites here in Joshua, they actually knew something about God. They knew something of his character. They knew by word of mouth the ways he had acted in history. And we know that because of Rahab's own confession as a Canaanite. We know that because the Gibeonites, they heard, they understood but on the whole, the Canaanites refused to believe. Right? They would rather risk being cut down at the knee than bending the knee to God. And such rebellion against their creator, as we see all throughout scripture, that's high treason. The judgment is death. Their physical death in these chapters, a picture of their own spiritual death. Right? They would have no place in God's promised land. Rather, they would only know God in his wrath as an all-consuming fire. Friends, part of what's being pictured right before heaven is, is what happens to those who reject God. It's a biblical picture of hell, not simply the absence of God as we thought about in Amos a few weeks ago, but the presence of God and the fullness of his divine wrath against sin. I think what makes Joshua 6 to 12, if you happen to have read them, what makes them so raw and unsettling, these chapters, particularly to readers today, 
is that it gives us a glimpse into what God's judgment of sin actually entails. And friends, these chapters, they're not the kind of picture that you go plop $10 down and go see in a theater. This isn't the kind of picture that you're going to curl up on a couch and watch with some popcorn. It's unspeakably awful. And no one escapes this judgment of God. So when Jericho is captured, we read verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old. Or in Ai, chapter 8, verse 22. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. Or Hebron, chapter 10, verse 36. They, the Israelites, left none remaining and devoted to destruction every person in it. Those are just three. There are eight more refrains that say effectively the exact same thing. And friends, I think here we come to some of the hardest passages in the Old Testament, if not in the Bible itself, right? They conflict. Passages like that, they can conflict with all of our modern sensibilities of, of enemy non-combatants, right, of ethnic cleansing, perhaps, or genocide. So if you read through these chapters this week and you're struggling to understand what took place, I think it's just appropriate we stop and spend just a few minutes helping address these things. Because if you're like me, you had those same questions. So I just want to ask four questions as we try to understand these texts like we just read. First, in these verses, is God condoning genocide? Is that what he's doing? Is he condoning genocide? I don't think he is. And that's because in genocide, the principal issue is race or culture. Right? I prayed for the Rohingyas in Myanmar, right? They're Buddhists, or rather, the Buddhists are in Myanmar. They're largely Muslim. And they're being persecuted and exterminated because they're Rohingya. But the issue with the Canaanites is not that they're Canaanites, right? It's not the patina of the skin. God's clear it's the perversion of their hearts. That's at the core. That's the principal issue, right? The Canaanites, not your model next-door neighbors. Leviticus 18 talks about their incestuous behavior, talks about their bestiality, how they would even butcher their own babies as sacrifices to gods. And it's why in Leviticus, God promises to punish them, not simply because they're Canaanites, not on account of their skin color, but on account of their sin. And as we'll see with Achan in chapter 7, God is as determined to rid Canaan of sinful Canaanites as he is to determined to rid Canaan of sinful Israelites. He's not going to have a double standard. So I don't think it's fair to call what's happening here genocide or ethnic cleansing. Well, then, a natural question, why doesn't God show mercy? I mean, give the Canaanites an opportunity to repent. Well, friend, he had. He had given them such opportunities. Genesis 15, God says to Abraham that his descendants would enter the promised land only when the sin of the Canaanites had reached its full measure. In other words, God's been waiting 430 years for the Canaanites to come around, to turn from their sin. But in their own stubbornness of heart, they had refused to, and that time for mercy, that had just run out. 
All right, but what about all the sort of non-combatants as we think about it these days, right? The women, the, the old and the young. I think that's perhaps the most agonizing of the issues as we read through these chapters. But, you know, as you read through the Bible, one of the things you come to understand is there actually aren't such things as innocent bystanders in this life, right? Spiritually speaking, we are all combatants, spiritually speaking, for all have sinned against God, Romans 3.23. By that sin, we've made God our enemy, right? Like our first parents in the garden, we've taken sides with Satan against God, Hence, he is our enemy. And the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is what? It's death. And, you know, friends, maybe you learn the Roman road. You teach it to kids, perhaps. You know those verses. But just think about what Romans 6.23 is teaching. The wages of sin is death. Joshua is picturing that for us. So those verses that we can read so casually... Right here in these chapters, they're, they're arrestingly, they're shockingly, and yet accurately depicting what God's judgment will be like. He doesn't take sin lightly. He is a holy God, and it is good that he doesn't take sin lightly. But this sin leads to death for everyone. That's the wages of sin. Just like it did with the flood back in chapter 6 of Genesis, just like it did with the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think what makes this maybe a little harder is this time, you know, the, the agent is Israel. It's not a flood. It's, 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 it's not fire. It's, it's, it's a group of people, Israel. But friends, it's still God's judgment. So you can think of Israel in these chapters in many respects like a bailiff who's merely carrying out the judge's orders. And what we begin to see is is that the Canaanites only received what all people then and now deserve. Right, Joshua 6 to 12, a picture of the judgment that every one of us will face before a holy and good God. And this judgment is, in fact, in itself, a pale imitation of that judgment that will one day fall upon the whole world as is cleansed from evil by fire. Think of 2 Peter 3. Think of Revelation 21. Fourth, though, can, can we use a passage like this to support sort of Christian jihad today, like the, the Crusades in the 11th to 13th centuries? Can we use these passages to support such behavior today? I don't think we can. Right? These commands, really clear, you understand, given once, given to the old covenant people of Israel, limited to the land of Canaan where God's presence under that covenant was uniquely to dwell. Now, with the coming of Christ and the new covenant, where, where is God's dwelling place? Well, it's not in Canaan, it's, it's in his people. And the warfare of the church, even as we sang in the song earlier, the warfare of the church is not physical, it's spiritual. So we're not called to go into Canaan with weapons today, we're called to go into the whole world with the message of Christ. Our shield is what? The shield of faith. We sang about the belt of truth. The sword of the word is the sword that we wield, Ephesians 6. Or so just to be clear, no careful, no responsible Bible reader can ever justify any kind of Christian jihad from verses like this or any, any other verses in the New Testament or the Old Testament for that matter. Now listen, there's more I could say. I felt like I needed to say at least that much if you read and had questions like this this week. So who will be in heaven? 
Well, not everyone. But notice there's a second subcategory of that even. Not everyone with a, with a rich spiritual heritage. Not everyone with a rich spiritual heritage. Friends, that, that turns us to this character, Achan. And Achan may be the most haunting character of the entire book. So his parents' generation died in the wilderness for their faithlessness. Now, Achan would have watched his own parents die. He would have watched them wear down. He may have well dug their burial plots along some deserted, dusty road somewhere out there in the desert, long lost, now forgotten. Achan witnessed firsthand the cost of doubting and disbelieving and and disobeying God's word. He witnessed that himself. And then, of course, he would have been part of that group, right? His own sandals would have skipped across that dry Jordan. His own eyes would have beheld the walls of Jericho crumble to the sounds of trumpets, to a chorus of voices, right? He had a courtside seat to some of the mightiest acts of God in history. Achan had all that. And he was in the tribe of Judah, the tribe that was tasked to construct the ark, the, the tribe from which would come King David, even Jesus himself. In other words, Achan had everything. He had the pedigree, he had the personal experience, and yet he throws it all away. If you look back at chapter 6, you know, the narrative begins to pick up speed. Chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And at the climactic moment at the Battle of Jericho, when we're at the edge of our seats and the people shout, We expect at that moment the walls to fall. But the narrator pauses, and instead we get this little public service announcement in verse 18. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Right? He gives that little public service announcement to be crystal clear with his people. You are not to touch this stuff. It has been devoted to me. And yet, nonetheless, Achan, he would disobey. He would steal some of these devoted things for himself. I mean, you got to ask, what was Achan thinking? What was he thinking that God couldn't see, that somehow the Lord would be struck with amnesia, not remember what he had just commanded the people? Well, who knows what Achan was thinking? Friends, sin is always irrational. It is always irrational. It never makes sense. There's never a good explanation for it. There's not for Achan, not for us. Now, does Achan confess to his sin? Well, not immediately. It's not until they really call out the people, 7, 14 through 18. They have the tribes come forward, and then they have them come forward by clan, and then by family, and then the man, until only Achan is standing. And at that point, when he's the last man standing, and all eyes are upon him, exposed and put under oath, chapter 7, verse 19, Achan then replies in chapter 7, verse 20, truly I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 20 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them. See, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. My friends, just stop there. I don't want you to miss this object lesson in sin. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, sin begins. It begins 
by distrusting God at his word. That's where it begins. Has God really given me all I need to be content? Wouldn't I be so much happier if I just had fill in the blank? Right? Sin, well, it takes root in a heart that doubts that God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And from that root, notice what it takes to, to give it life. Achan saw and he coveted and he took. Those are the three same verbs used to describe Eve back in the garden with that first sin. Like Eve, Achan saw what was pleasing. He desired it. He convinced himself he had to have it in order to be happy. And so he took it. And now sin, full grown, has given birth to death. And tragically, Achan and his sin has become a Canaanite. Right? The trouble that he was warned about, chapter 6, verse 18, it has now fallen upon him, chapter 7, verse 25. Friends, you got to understand, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, it's not like U.S. citizenship. It's not something you're born into. It's not something that's magically conferred upon us in some way in the church at baptism. Right? Heaven is for those who trust in God and his word and not themselves. It's for those who have turned from their sin and they see that God is good and he is all they need. Achan was a member of the right church, right? The other tribe of David, like the best church. He knew his Bible stories, no doubt, but his heart wasn't broken, right? It fundamentally longed. He longed for something other than God. A friend this morning, ask yourself, what does your own heart say about you? What does your own heart say about you? What is your heart longing after this morning? What is it telling you you have to have in order to be happy? Oh, friend, whatever that thing is, beware of it. Remember Achan, what he thought he had to have. Beware of that, my friend. Nothing will so quickly destroy your life as dissatisfaction with what God has given and the corresponding lust to obtain what God has not seen fit to provide. And what's doubly tragic about this all is had he waited, he actually could have had it all. I don't know if you notice this, chapter 8, verse 2. When they come against Ai the second time, God says, its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. If he'd only waited... If he had just waited, but he wouldn't, he wanted to have what he wanted on his time frame and not the Lord's. My friend, don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Who will be in heaven? Not everyone. Not everyone with a rich spiritual heritage. But there will be some people there, all right? Who are they? Well, those who believe in the promise and power of God. That's what we see. Who's there? Those who believe in the promise and in the power of God, right? Jew and Gentile, right? That means Rahab, for example. It was on the basis of her confession back in chapter two that we pick up chapter six, verse 25, 
Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. Chapters 6 and 7 are really remarkable chapters. For on the one hand, you've got Achan of Judah, who by his actions and his disbelief has made himself a Canaanite. And you've got Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, who by her own actions and belief, she has now made herself an Israelite. Complete reversal. The point is not birth. The point is belief. The point is those who believe and trust in this God. The same thing's true of the Gibeonites. Look forward to chapter 9. So the five kings, remember they go to war at Gibeonites for defecting to Israel? Well, verse 3, when they heard, well, they they eventually go to war for defecting. Why did they defect? We get that story, chapter 9, verse 3. When the Gibeonites heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. In other words, they made it look like they're coming from a very long distance away. They weren't a neighbor. Verse 9, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord your God. We have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, to Sihon, king of Heshbon, Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtoreth. So notice, their account is very similar to Rahab. They had heard of what this God had done, his great fame, but instead of taking up arms against him, they choose to submit to him. Now the Bible's not condoning their ruse any more than it condones Rahab's own lie. It's merely giving this ruse as evidence of their great faith, the great lengths they will go in order to be associated with God's people. Now, the ruse shouldn't have worked. And had Joshua consulted with the Lord, verse 14, you know, maybe things would have turned out differently. But yet God in his mercy is still able to bring about good out of Joshua's error. That's a good reminder for us. Christians, God works no differently with the people of Israel in this respect than he does with us. He too can bring good out of our own errors. Right? You've got to recall this morning, God is bigger than your greatest sins, greater than your greatest mistakes. There's no sin of yours, past or present, that can thwart his good purposes. He can even use your checkered past, a past you may be ashamed of. He can use that to accomplish his purposes. Think back to AI again. Israel Achan had sinned. Israel turns and runs. They lose the battle. And yet, Plans thwarted, all undone, the future's over, not at all. God uses that sin nonetheless, and he actually uses that to lure overconfident AI out of their cities, and Israel is able to take and to defeat them. And that glimpse into history, I just a reminder for us, God's plans are always mightier than our own failures. Right? There's no sin, however great, that he can't turn into the most magnificent display of his own glory. So who gets to heaven? Not everyone, not everyone with the rich spiritual heritage. Those, however, who do believe and the power and the promise of God to save. But how do we get there? That's our second question I want us to think about in the remainder of our time. How do we get to this heaven? Well, clearly not by our own efforts. 
That's the first thing you need to see. We don't get there by our own efforts. If chapter 6 to 12 of Joshua teach us anything, it is the vanity of human effort apart from God. The utter vanity of all human efforts apart from God. Now at first glance, maybe Joshua 6 to 12 seemed to be about Israel's cunning military strategy, like all of her victories. You might even think that the promised land is won through human ingenuity and, and execution and perseverance. But look again back at chapter 6. Chapter 6 is 27 verses. 27. How many of those verses deal with Israel's role in defeating Jericho? One and a half. That's it. A whopping one and a half verses. And what's their military strategy? They don't have a strategy. Joshua 6 isn't about tactics. Right? The marching in circles, the priests going out with the ark, Right, the number seven, the trumpets, it's all more of a religious ceremony than it is a battle plan. And that's because as the kid's song goes, Joshua didn't fight the battle of Jericho. I know you may have sang that song as a kid. Unfortunately, some of the things we learn as children in Sunday school are just wrong. Joshua didn't fight the battle. God fought the battle. It was his. What does the Lord say? 6-2, I have given Jericho into your hand. I mean, just honestly ask yourself, when was the last time a city was toppled by trumpets and a choir? It just doesn't happen unless God is fighting. Chapter 8, verse 1, I, God, have given into your hand the king of Ai. All right, chapter 10, verse 8, referring to the five Amorite kings, do not fear, for I have given them into your hands. Then it's the Lord. What does he do? He causes the the sun and moon to be still. Now we can debate what kind of miracle happened there, but the meaning is clear. Chapter 10, verse 14, surely the Lord fought for Israel. And in chapter 11, Joshua meets the northern kings. What do they have? They've got armies of chariots, and they've got horses as numerous as the sand on the seashore we read. And what do we read? Chapter 11, verse 6, God says to Israel, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. That's one of those details. It's just good to say, why in the world does God make that command? Right? Why not use the horse and chariots? Israel's bringing a knife to a gunfight. If they happen to win, take the guns. Use the guns. Well, it's because he's saying to them to be crystal clear, make no mistake, you will win by me or you will not win at all. Horses and chariots, weapons of man, worthless. I am what you need. Then in 1119, we read there was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites. They took them all in battle. Why? You would think maybe Joshua's successes would lead some to seek peace. But we read in chapter 11, verse 20, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts, that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. God hardened their hearts. It was his doing. Right, very similar to Pharaoh in Exodus. Here again, the hardening of the heart it's seen in conjunction with the people hardening their own hearts. 
Both things are happening. 430 years of the people hardening their hearts. And then as a form of judicial hardening, as a kind of punishment, God hardens the heart. And now they will not turn. It's his response to their stubborn rebellion. Even back in chapter 8, verse 30, the curious thing that God commands Joshua to do, to march the whole army up to Mount Ebal. I mean, when their enemies are on the run, why make that decision at that moment? Well, it's, they build an altar to God as a reminder that God, not man, has the solution to sin. He's the one that can deal with their issues. He's the one that's going to establish them in the land. Why is this altar supposed to be made of uncut stones on which no iron tool should be used? Another one of these curious details. It's the utter negation of humanism. God is making clear, right? There is nothing we can do. There's nothing we can contribute. There's no chipping away, shaving. There's no molding that we participate and cooperate in to save ourselves. Friends, I can just keep going. I can cite verse after verse. The point is inescapable. The promised land, heaven, it cannot be won by human effort. It can't. God must do it or we all are hopeless. Behind all of this, God is at work. You know the old quote by Shakespeare, right? All the world's a stage and all the men merely players in it. It feels a little bit like Joshua. He's at work. Doesn't mean our work is unimportant, but we see the priority of his work as he goes ahead. Think about it, Joshua's 31 and 1 in these chapters. That's an impressive military record. One defeat. What's the one defeat? when God didn't fight for his people at AI. We can no more get to heaven by our own efforts than Israel could ever defeat puny little AI by their own efforts. So we don't get to heaven by our own efforts. We also, secondly, don't get there through various paths. There aren't various paths. Now many will say religion in the end, it doesn't matter what brand, right? That's how I was raised. Christianity, Judaism, Islam, they all lead to the same place, streams into the same ocean. We all land in the same spot. But that's not the testimony of Joshua. It's not the testimony of Jesus who will say, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Friend, it's why we read from Matthew 7 earlier in the service. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. All paths in the scriptures, all paths lead, in fact, to destruction, save one. That's the path that Joshua has been pointing us to all along. Joshua means Yahweh saves. Translated into Greek, Joshua is Jesus. It is Jesus. Joshua is pointing us to him, to Christ, right? Because where Israel disobeyed in the wilderness, Jesus didn't. He succeeded. Where Achan stumbled in his own temptation, Jesus didn't stumble. Jesus would be that leader who would usher God's people into the promised land. But it would not be by the sword. Right? Jesus would become, he himself would become that offering devoted to destruction. So that future Achans, like you and me, so that we wouldn't have to. If you saw what happened to the five Amorite kings, what happens when their cities are taken? They're taken outside the city. And they're hung up upon a tree until sundown. Why that? Why on a, 
Why outside the city? Why on a tree? Outside the city speaks to their exile. To be hung on a tree is an indication you're under God's curse. And yet, in the fullness of time, what is Jesus? He's taken outside the city. He himself hung upon a tree like those kings until sundown. He's bearing the curse of God for sin, but not his own sins. He had no sin of which he had to suffer for. He's bearing the sins of all those who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And yet he would rise again. Death would not have the final word like it did for those Amorite kings. No, he would, he would rise. And just as Joshua and Israel would put their feet upon the necks of those five Amorite kings, so Jesus, the true Israel, he would make that great foe Satan himself. What does he make him? A footstool under his feet. Psalm 110. Jesus alone conquers the power of sin and death. He alone would be that sacrificial lamb, that great line of Judah for all those like Rahab, like the Gibeonites, who trust in him for salvation. The path to heaven can only be found in one who has himself once and for all conquered the power of hell. From the path to heaven is in Jesus. And it can be yours. It can be the path that you placed upon just by turning from your sin, by trusting in Christ, by believing he is who he says he is, who the Bible holds him out to be, who he taught himself to be. And friend, whatever your religious background, whatever your race, whatever your past, we see it with Jesus, we see it in Joshua. God never devotes those to destruction who freely devote themselves to him. He never devotes to destruction those who freely devote themselves to him. And friends, that just leaves us with one last question. Will you be in heaven? Will you be there? Because not everyone will be. Not even everyone with a rich spiritual heritage. And we don't get there via our own efforts. We don't get there through various paths. We've got another who has to go before us who has to fight on our behalf. And just notice how these very chapters end. Chapter 12. Chapter 12 ends, and we have a list of 31 defeated kings. He works through them one by one. From that list reflects the vanity of human opposition against God. It's a reminder of the utter futility of opposing God's reign. The hard reality is that this list, this list is our list. We would be among those defeated kings. In our our sins, our names would be in that list. Our only hope is in fact in another list of names written out one by one. A list that records the names of all those who've walked away from that past and their former loves and looked to Christ. Revelation 20, we read of something called the Lamb's Book of Life. And for those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, their names are in that book. Not this list, but that list. And they will be granted everlasting life. So friend, consider your life. Take stock of that this morning. What you believe. Who you're trusting in. And ask yourself, In which book 
is your name recorded? In which list will it be found? Friend, will you be in heaven? Let's pray. Oh God, we come to you and we pray to you. Lord, in chapters like this, we're often left silent. We can feel the, the vanity and the futility of opposing you. And you can feel almost too great. Maybe even a little too sharp for us. Oh, but God, remind us of the one who has gone before us, who has fought for us, who himself was hung outside the city upon that tree, bearing the curse of our sins if we would turn and repent and believe in him. Oh God, help us not to take our sins lightly. Help us not to take our futures lightly. It's nothing less than eternity. So God, we pray that the physical pictures of these spiritual realities we've been studying in Joshua Oh God, help them press upon our own hearts the seriousness, the weightiness, and the need to come to terms with these things and who you are. Oh God, help us to trust in you and in you alone. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.